Welcome to the Femi Pod. These are conversations about females for everyone to listen to, learn from, and engage with. Brought to you by your Femi founders, Esther Kewen and myself, Lydia O'Donnell. Welcome back to the Femi Pod. This week, our incredible guest is already part of the Femi team. The amazing Sarah Whittison is our Femi dietitian who has been working with women and their hormones for many years. Sarah runs her own company called Your Monthly and is a wizard when it comes to helping women who suffer with hormonal imbalances by using the power of food to help them on their recovery journey. Sarah has helped many of our Femi athletes come back from Red S and we are so excited to share her knowledge with you all today. Sarah, welcome to the pod. How are you all the way from Christchurch? What's been going on for the start of 2022? Hi, it's so nice to finally get a slot on the show. I don't know about being a wizard, but I liked that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm good. Yeah, Christchurch is is beautiful. Obviously, I feel like we should not talk about COVID. That's been a thing this week in New Zealand, um, but we're managing. Yeah, awesome. I think it's, um, yeah, COVID's been a thing everywhere, but I have seen the news over in New Zealand and, um, yeah, my thoughts are with, with everyone over there, especially with all those athletes who have had um, races cancelled that are coming up. Yes, that is um, very sad and frustrating and just feel the emotions. If you are listening and you've had a race cancelled, feel all those emotions, let them, let them come and go. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, it's, it's tough when you've been training for so long and you don't get a race in. Um, but also, like, it's a bit scary because over in Aussie, you know, everyone's getting it. And as runners, it's how do you recover from that as well, um, which is a whole other story. But <laughs> um, Sarah, how did you get into nutrition and what was it that made you want to work with women in particular? I wish I had, like, a really cool story for this question. <laughs> but I literally um, was in seventh form in high school and like a careers advisor came uh, to, to meet with like our class and uh, they kind of asked me some questions about what I enjoyed and I, I think I've always been interested in science and the human body and they threw out the suggestion of a dietitian and I'd seriously never heard of it before and then I kind of went away and did some reading and um, I really wanted to study at Otago University which is in Sweden in the South Island and it's furthest uni from my family I could pick which is terrible that's a teenage brain for you and I was like I'm gonna do it and I just literally fell in love with I feel so lucky with the career option that I picked one day in student form um and then after completing my training it was one of those things that I loved like more and more I did it every year we got to learn more and more about the body and how much nutrition plays a role in everything that we do and then I landed my first job actually working with children at Christchurch Hospital. And kind of a side part of my role, I was working in women's health at Christchurch Women's Hospital. And I, yeah, I kind of took it from there really. And now work at a private women's health clinic in Christchurch as well as online. And I just think, I always say this to clients, I think women are really interesting. I think we, uh, like physically, our bodies far more interesting than men who make testosterone like from the age of 12 until they die how boring and consistently <laughs> across the day maybe the feminist in me I think we've had to really advocate for ourselves in terms of being 
um, you know, rights to contraception and, and being heard if we have, you know, chronic pain that might be something like endometriosis. And it's just such a gift to walk with women on that advocacy journey. And I love my job. Yeah, that's amazing. I think it's incredible to know that you found nutrition at such a young age. I think it's a really hard thing to be able to figure out what you want to do for your career when you're still like a teenager straight out of school. So I always look at people who did find what they wanted to do at that young age and I'm like in awe of them. It's pretty amazing that you know so early on. What a flow came. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe you just knew deep down you're, you're okay. really in tune with your gut. <laughs> Uh, when we talk about nutrition, it's traditionally a topic we talk about when people are speaking about trying to lose weight. Um, yeah. At Femi, we never want to talk about weight or what we look like. But why is it so important to get our nutrition right as a female in particular? Yeah, I guess and if we kind of go back to what I was saying before about how women are so interesting, I think we are so unique and that across our lifespan. So like from when we were a child through to an adolescent through to maybe our peak fertile years and then pregnancy, breastfeeding, and then, you know, perimenopause and then postmenopause. If you look at the nutrition requirements or demands on a female body across that lifespan, it is completely different. Not in terms of, you know, things like can just calories per se, but also you like you know, calcium for your bones, or we talk a lot about iron deficiency in teenagers. Um, so I think there's so much unique nutrition advice for every age and stage. And I think we're really good at talking about some of those ages and stages, like pregnancy and breastfeeding gets lots of attention, for example. Um, but we're not so good when it comes to things like perimenopause or postmenopausal, which is something I'm, I'm definitely trying to focus on with the women I work with as well. Um, so yeah, we just, how, um, yeah, we have so many different demands and challenges, basically, from when we're born until we die. I loved your uh, thing before with men, testosterone <laughs> from the age of 12 and then they die. Yeah, women definitely have a lot more to deal with throughout their life and people like you make it a little bit easier, yeah. which is awesome. We know that there's so many changes that happen to our hormones throughout the month when we're in our reproductive years and have a menstrual cycle, if we do have a menstrual cycle. Um, how can we adapt our nutrition to our menstrual cycle and make the most of our hormonal fluctuations? Yeah, so that's... Um... I love what you say, Esther, around making the most of our hormonal fluctuations. I definitely, uh, like I use language with my clients, like hormones are our superpower, something that's given to us as a gift that we get to utilize and use um, in everything that we do, not just performance-wise or training-wise, uh, but also things like creativity and our confidence and all sorts of things. And what we know across the cycle, um, and I probably preface the answer by saying this is still an area that's definitely being researched. And a lot of the advice that I give clients around championing their cycle with nutrition probably comes from, you know, anecdotal evidence, working with clients in a clinical setting and hearing what works for them. But if we kind of start with your follicular phase, so that first part of your cycle where estrogen, I call her queen bee, and that part of your cycle where she's really dominant. What we know there is that estrogen changes how our body uses carbohydrates to so become more efficient at accessing glucose as a fuel source. And because of that, a lot of women will notice that they're not as hungry in that part of their cycle. So it's, it's kind of like an appetite deficiency if you think about it that way. Um, and I'll often joke with clients that our libido's a lot higher at that part of our cycle. And, you know, we've got appetite for something else and not so much food. <laughs> And uh, because of that, a lot of female athletes, particularly if you're somebody who uses, you know, body cues to eat, so relying on things like hunger and fullness, 
um, athletes can be particularly at risk of underfueling at that part of their cycle because they're just not as interested in food as they might be closer towards their period. So I think that's definitely something to, to think about is while appetite is so powerful and I think should be with the food, we also need really good plans around nutrition and being aware that just because you're not hungry doesn't mean that your body's not asking for food or that it doesn't need food. Um, we also know that glucose utilization is improved at that part of your cycle. Um, so we're really good at using energy at that part of our cycle. So athletes will often report feeling more energetic or, you know, running's feeling more comfortable, more powerful for them at that part of their cycle, which is really interesting. And then as you kind of move towards ovulation and after the act of ovulation itself, estrogen doesn't completely go away, but she takes more of a backseat. And then you get the rise of the beautiful hormone progesterone, which is probably the lesser spoken about of the two. And progesterone is a completely different experience. So physically, things to be aware of is progesterone will slow down your digestion. And it's your body trying to be really kind so if we think about progesterone as an opportunity to maintain a pregnancy, so if an egg and a sperm had met each other and they'd become fertilized, progesterone wants you to maintain uh, that situation and let implantation happen. And so because of that, your body wants you to have lots of absorption of nutrients. So it slows down the whole gut system so you can get more opportunity to absorb more nutrition from food. But how that plays out and how we feel as a female is often we can feel quite bloated after meals. We might feel like digestion is more sluggish. And if you're somebody who's quite uh, sensitive or, or symptomatic of slower digestion, for example, you might get more um, runner's gut all of a sudden, or um, you might feel really uncomfortable after meals. That can be really difficult. So something that I recommend clients do at that part of their cycle is if you know what your common triggers are of things floating, then I would definitely minimize those at that part of your cycle. So things like um, there's certain vegetables that cause more production of gas in the large intestine. So things like onion and garlic are really well known to do that, or cauliflower or mushrooms. Um, if you are vegetarian or vegan or you just enjoy plant-based foods, really big portions of lentils and chickpeas can also cause the same effect. And I think we all know like the baked bean effect. I probably don't have to say too much more about that. <laughs> Um, and, you know, other uh, really fermentable foods like apples and pears and stone fruits. Chewing your food well, trying not to eat too quickly, having regular meals across the day, so not skipping meals and then having a really big portion at one part of the day is really important. So the gut element of progesterone is, I think, important to consider. Um, the other thing that happens to us hormonally as we start to lose progesterone towards our period is we get the rise of the dreaded PMS, which lots of us experience. And something that women will often talk about is that really intense sugar craving. We might feel really big appetite swings, so feeling ravenous all of a sudden. We might notice that our mood really changes. Um, so we might become more impatient, which we see that as well. <laughs> um, or like quite vulnerable to emotions. And what we know is if we think about um, that kind of mood impact PMS, if you think about sustaining energy levels through blood sugar management at that part of your cycle, I think we all can relate to being hangry. If you think about the idea of being hangry, if you can minimize that experience, it can often make you feel more robust emotionally at that part of your cycle. So what I really recommend to clients is focusing on lots of protein towards their period. So I think protein is a nutrition uh, element that a lot of people under eat. So thinking about having protein across the day, 
particularly afternoon tea and snack time. I think as we get tired across the day, we get more symptomatic with those PMS emotions. So making sure that you're having a really high protein lunch and afternoon tea is important. Um, I'd also be focusing on whole grain carbohydrates. So carbohydrates digest differently depending on how much fiber's in them. So if you think about a really simple carbohydrate like a piece of white bread, for example, nothing wrong with humble white bread, but it's going to digest quite quickly into glucose. And what that might mean is you're going to end up with that big peak and spike of blood sugar level. You're going to um, have that sensation of feeling full and then really hungry quite quickly. And that would also follow maybe that emotional experience of PMS for you in the afternoon or evening. So I'd be wanting clients to swap it for whole grain foods like oats, quinoa or ground rice, for example. And I know that's not always what we feel like in the lead up to our periods. But it's maybe thinking about those comfort foods that we all turn to and thinking about how could I add some protein or some fiber here just to mediate that. And then after um, grand ovulation and progesterone's gone away, we of course have the period phase or the bleed phase of our cycle. And I think the most important thing there is, again, uh, digestion changes. So we have a lot of irritation of the smooth muscle in our body when we have our periods. And your uterus is made of your smooth muscle, but unfortunately, so is your large intestine. So it tends to be collateral damage and a lot of people will have changes in bowel motions at that part of their cycle. So again, I'd be avoiding foods that give you a bit of a funny tummy and you have an awareness that you probably don't digest very well at that part of your cycle. And the other thing I often recommend there is making sure that you're getting in lots of iron-rich foods because iron's attached to red blood cells. And of course, with a period, you're losing iron every month. Um, and if you're somebody who exercises, you know, more than four hours a week, you're also more at risk of iron deficiency. So we've got your heme iron, which is your red meat, basically, really bioavailable and easy to absorb. And then we have your non-heme iron, which is from your plant-based sources, not as easy to absorb, but still really valuable. Um, I could talk about that for ages, but lots of iron. Yeah, wow. we didn't actually have any questions in there about iron, but let's just ask a quick question about iron because there's mm -hmm. so many athletes, female athletes that do suffer low iron. What mm -hmm. is your take on supplementing if you are someone who is suffering from low iron? Do you believe that it's something that's necessary or do you think we can get 100%. enough from food? Yeah, I think supplements play, um, they can play a really vital role. So if someone already has iron deficiency, we know that their ability to heal that deficiency just with food is probably quite difficult. Um, so if you think about, you know, uh, the iron requirements being, you know, 18 to 20 milligrams a day, 100 grams of chicken only has 0.9 milligrams. So if you can kind of quantify how much you're going to have to eat uh, to heal that deficiency, it's quite a lot. And therefore, I think particularly in some groups, like really active females who might have more of a plant-based diet, I think that supplements um, as a baseline anyway are really valuable. I do. Yeah, amazing. And from my own experience, I've, I'm not plant-based, but I don't eat a lot of meat. I'm really, yeah. if you'd like to put a title on it, probably pescatarian. But um, my iron is actually increased and been pretty good ever since I did cut out a lot of meat. So I don't think you necessarily have to be eating meat, right, to be able to not have high, high, high iron. Not, not at all. I think it's just that awareness of your requirements and something you and I have spoken about before, Lydia, is getting your iron checked as part of kind of your you know, wellness toolbox as an athlete, I think is really important. And it's a blood test that most GPs or healthcare providers are really happy to do. Definitely. And I think I also had line and I took... Um, Bear grade C, but I had the worst stomach issues from it. I was going to say, it's like concrete, concrete 
I know, but I found a really good one, Floridex, which is really good. And um, there's those ones that you talked about as well, Sarah, those chewy, chewy ones that also have like folic Oh, iron melt? Yeah, they're okay. yum too. <laughs> <laughs> those are from awesome. my time um, in pediatrics working with kids. Oh, they're the yummy supplements. I love them too. So <laughs> Another really good tip, if there's anyone listening who uh, finds supplements and finds them really hard on your gut, you can split the dose. So you could do like a dose every second day is completely appropriate to give your gut a rest. Um, or if you were taking, say, two prescribed iron pills a day, I'd do one in the morning and one at night. So just letting your gut deal with one lot at a time can be really useful. Yeah, good tips. And um, what are the best tips or foods that we can focus on to balance our hormones if we have hormone imbalance? My first instinct answering that question is I think the number one thing that I see in clinic that women still are not doing is not eating enough. And I know that sounds so simple. Um, and it's more complex than just knowing, obviously. But I we need to think about having hormonal production as something that's nice to have. Basically, if we think about critical processes, all you've got is cardiovascular system, so your heart beating, your circulatory system, so the delivery of oxygen and glucose around your body, and the rest is pretty much nice to have. So if you think about it in that sense, what happens when women undereat is we have a really big impact on our hormones, and that might be you know, short-term, you know, like feeling more PMS, for example, because we're hungry as well as hormonal. Or long-term, it can be suppression of ovulation because your body is interpreting that undernutrition as you not being an environment that's going to be conducive to a pregnancy. And ovulating is the first ingredient to a pregnancy, whether we want that or not. So I think um, that would be my number one tip is you need to be eating enough. And if you're not sure if you're eating enough, um, one of the questions I'll ask my clients sometimes to get them thinking about this is imagine, I get them to really think about someone they love and care about. And I get them to imagine that that person had to do everything that they did today on the food that they have eaten. And would they be happy with that amount of food that they've fed that person they love? And if people have an awareness to that under eating, you often see them squirm in the chair or, you know, um, there's no way I'd get Esther to do all the things that I'm doing on that little nutrition because they know that they've been under eating. Um, but then there's also the group that just literally have no idea about the demands of their activity on their body and the importance of you know eating enough, not only for that activity, whatever it whatever it is, um, but also for their cycle as well. So that would be my answer. We need to eat more, probably. Mm, and speaking about under eating, eating disorders are relatively prevalent amongst women who play sport, partly because of the fact that our bodies are being scrutinized in the media and spoken about and very intertwined into performance. Um, both Esther and I have both suffered from um, disordered eating in the past. Can we speak a little bit more about the impact of eating disorders and what that can do to our hormonal health? I know you touched on it a little bit, but I'd love to give the listeners just like a deeper dive into when we aren't fueling correctly. And we speak about red S a lot on the pod here, but what actually happens to our hormones in that process of not fueling correctly? Yeah. So, I mean, the first, so if you think about it, and I'm sure Izzy would have spoken about this in her episode, but if you go back um, to thinking about hormones like a food chain, what happens is initially your brain has to make the hormone, luteinizing hormone, to allow uh, estrogen production to take place. Luteinizing hormone um, that is suppressed when we have overall calorie restriction going on, but also there's a lot of evidence now that carbohydrate restriction will suppress luteinizing hormone too. 
So you can get an athlete eating appropriate calorie intake, but an absence of sufficient carbohydrate intake, it can also cause issues with ovulation. And then when you have that estrogen suppressed, so we're going to take away that non-vital or non-essential process of ovulation. And what we know about estrogen within the context of a female athlete is it's really critical for bone development and formation and also rebuild, rebuilding after jarring exercise like running. So often, um, the way that I often meet my clients with WEDF is they'll be referred to me by a sports medicine consultant. Um, so they've got a young person sitting in front of them that's had repeat injury um, over you know, the period of a calendar year. Um, what you'll often see as well is because of uh, that hormone suppression going on, you'll often see changes in mood. So a lot of clients with WEDF report things like anxiety or depression or low mood. And if you think about the role of estrogen, again, like that fertile hormone, what that might embody, it makes women feel more positive, it makes us have more libido, et cetera. Um, and a lot of that emotional consequence of losing estrogen is also seen in clients with red um, You know, we also know that progesterone, which is only made after ovulation, so that would be suppressed. Also, progesterone is really important for sleep quality as well, and sleep is how athletes heal and recover. Um, so often you'll see a change in their sleep pattern if you ask athletes about their sleep with red um, they'll wake up feeling unrested. And then there's a variety of rare consequences kind of outside of female sex hormones. So we end up seeing issues with their heart, iron deficiency, an increase in irritable bowel syndrome is all really common signs and symptoms as well. Wow, so many things come alongside it. And it, yeah, it's really something we don't want people getting into, but... Um, when you touched on progesterone helping with sleep, I always noticed that week three of my cycle, I sleep like a baby. And then week four, I'm like, <laughs> so good, oh, hey? so good. yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> definitely. Yeah, very helpful. <laughs> um, but what can we do as leaders, coaches, or trainers, if anyone's listening, to help prevent an eating disorder or help an athlete sort of get the help that potentially they need um, to get out of yeah. that mindset? It's such a good question. I think, you know, the first thing is understanding. Um, you know, what puts somebody more at risk of experiencing an eating disorder or falling into eating disorder behaviors. And, you know, what we know about athletes is that they're disciplined, they're achievers, they like success, they can push through pain is a, um, you know, values or qualities that all athletes possess. And those are all also values that put people at risk of experiencing an eating disorder. So I think it's important for coaches you know, to hear that if you are working with female athletes, you are working with a group that is going to be high risk. And then you kind of add on top of that, Lydia mentioned that, you know, there's certain sports where we have more, again, risk of eating disorder experience, and it tends to be sports where there's a focus on the individual. So, you know, team sports protects people from eating disorders. So like a female soccer team versus the female marathon runner is going to have a completely different risk. Um, and then sports where there's a focus on body, so there, where there's kind of, a, oh, for want of a better word, like sexualization or, um, you know, like running or swimming or gymnastics, for example, um, that also puts people at risk. So I think awareness of the group you're dealing with is really important. And um, the second thing is thinking about the culture that you're creating when you work with athletes. So something that Femi does really well is we don't bring weight into the conversation. And I know when I work with my RedF clients uh, through Femi, um, it's very much around performance and quality of life and, you know, what parts of your cycle do you miss and how could we bring those back rather than how many grams a week are we going to get you to gain or how much weight have you lost, et cetera. 
Um, so thinking about, you know, do you have a culture where you celebrate periods and talk about how they can be used to prepare athletes to better their performance on and off the field or the track? Um, you know, if you're weighing clients, why are you weighing them? You know, what, what beliefs do you have about weight and how could that be impacted on your clients? Um, and I think being brave enough to maybe uh, look at some of the, the, the stories that your athletes are telling you. Um, so, you know, if you notice people not eating, you know, during their training sessions or if you get them to do a food diary and you think it looks a little bit light, I think being brave enough to ask the question about what's going on is really important. And I think a lot of people who don't have confidence working in the eating disorder space, we're also afraid of making it worse by not bringing it up and just kind of addressing the elephant in the room. And what I would say to that is, um, I think inviting conversation about it is often really powerful for somebody struggling to hear. Um, and you'll find more often than not, they'll probably be quite relieved to have someone notice and to talk about it with. Um, so if you have an athlete or someone you're working with that's that they're really struggling with their eating disorder, I think it's important you understand that we know that timely access to care is their best shot. So not sitting on things and seeing how we go, it's really starting to build a plan with their athlete to start to turn things around quite quickly. So, you know, if they're under the age of 18, involving their family is really important. We know that family-based therapy is the best model if they're less than 18 years of old. Um, of age, sorry, um, you know, encouraging them to communicate with their GP about it and then having a dietitian and mental health support, whether that's a psychotherapist or a psychologist is really important. But as your coaches, I think their job is to, you know, know who's at risk, um, be able to identify early warning signs and have a bit of a, a, an action plan in place. How can I support this person to get access to care if they're willing to engage? Yeah, and I really like the way you talk about terminology and just making sure you're using like appropriate language around the athlete. And Esther yeah. and I have spoken recently being Esther was an environment where, um, you know, coaches and people were talking about an athlete and the way that she looked fit. And like even this, the word looking fit to us is something that we don't want to talk about. Um, we can say she is fit or she's running really well or she's really strong. But I think even just the word look can put an idea into people's head that you have to look a certain way to be at a certain level of, as an athlete. And that mm -hmm. also puts a lot of pressure on that athlete to, you know, restrict their diet and train harder and run more, whatever it may be. So terminology is a really big one. But, you know, coming from an athlete's perspective, if you're someone who you, you are an athlete, you are performing and you are suffering from an eating disorder, what are some steps that that athlete could take, um, you know, mentally to be able to get back on track, to be in a really healthy position, to be able to continue to perform really well, um, but in a really sustainable way? Yeah, honestly, I think doing it alone would be incredibly difficult. It's not impossible, but I think um, I would really encourage that person to find a, a practitioner um, or someone that they can start to pull in for some accountability uh, and some support. So whether that's like a teammate that you race with or, you know, your family coach, then you reach out and talk to them. Or like I was saying, a family member or a GP, I think that's so important to reach out and get help. Um, and because often by the time, you know, we're calling this thing an eating disorder, that beast has probably been around for quite a long time. Um, and I think what's really tricky about working with um, you know, people who are, are really high performers in terms of sports is if their behaviors around food are entangled with exercise, the exercise is, I think, quite socially celebrated, if that makes any sense. 
Um, so family members, etc., you know, might think that, you know, the amount of training that they're doing, even if it's over and above what their family coach has prescribed, they might think that's really great and that person's really amazing, but actually that's coming from a really unkind, different space. So I think we have to be really cautious of that. Um, if someone was in the, the capable position challenge some of those disordered thinking um, behaviors the first thing I would say is if you're weighing yourself I would kind of set up a, um, a bit of an experiment for myself where I invite myself to not weigh myself for a period of time and notice what that does to my maybe thought patterns or my behaviors with food so if I'm using the number of the scales to get permission around nutrition that could be quite interesting and if I become really distressed by the idea of removing the scales maybe that further validates how unwell this relationship with food is and that I really need help. Um, I would, if there's someone in your life that has a really positive relationship with food, so maybe there's another runner that you notice, um, you know, that she really eats like she means it, you know, could you kind of, you know, observe what she eats and think about um, is there any changes that you could begin to make to your diet to better align uh, with how the athlete is fueling themselves and, um, you know, I think as well, noticing the impact of, change in nutrition on your performance it's something that I think the gift working with athletes is you can talk about performance as kind of a carrot or a stick to making some change and if you just give yourself like a week of you know I'm really going to focus on fueling after training or I know that I've been running faster than the morning and I know that's not good for me if I eat breakfast before I go could I just notice the impact that has on my training for a week and often the change in how you're feeling physically or enjoying your training can be really good validation that you're on the right track. That reminds us of when Lids and I went on a camp with some other some other ladies recently, and I think they were surprised at how much we ate, the girls that we were with. So I think hopefully, you know, it shows how much food you should be eating and, um, mm -hmm. yeah, can hopefully yeah. tell you. I'll often get, um, like I know Stacey Sims, the exercise, physiologist I know that her work has been mentioned in Femi and um, if you've read her book Raw R-O-A-R um, not raw food as in like raw like a lion um, you'll see there's like example meal plans in her book and I can't tell you how many athletes have come into my clinic highlighting it thinking like what the fuck these women really eat and I'm like yeah because of the energy demands that's kind of what I mean around understanding the requirements um, so I think it's you know, a really positive thing to hear actually how much nutrition it is to, to get the most from your body. Yeah, I'm really yeah, proud of yeah. how much I eat. It's like my party trick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Um, like I can remember in my household even, I grew up with a, a brother and a dad and, you know, the men were always served the biggest meal. And there was always, if there was leftovers, it was encouraged, you know, you know dad will clean it up or your brother can have that extra bit for pieces and if I was eating more than them that was a comment and I think um, mm. you know we're not always aware of the impact that that modeling around mum or sister eating less than male counterpart um, has on our ability to feed ourselves as adult females definitely I always try to out eat um, or eat more than Byron my partner who's massive <laughs> so, you know and I you know okay. I need it so it's fine yeah um Absolutely. <laughs> we spoke a little bit about reds before and you talked you know the importance of carbohydrates um in keeping a menstrual cycle and keeping your hormones healthy but are there specific food types that we should be focusing on if one of the athletes or someone listening is recovering from reds yeah that's a really good question so i guess number one um 
I would, so overall calorie intake. So red energy deficiency in sport really simply says an under energy consumption for the amount of energy expenditure going on. Um, so you need to heal that gap. And overall calorie intake is really important. So some of the tricks or tools that I teach athletes is, um, particularly in red S, a lot of women will experience a down regulation in digestion because strangely, I think this is strange, but your digestive tract is a non-vital system um, in the absence of nutrition. So if an athlete just thinks, okay, I need to heal this red S by eating more, Often what can happen is if they just go to town on food at one part of the day, they'll end up feeling really um, bloated. Pain is often experienced in the gut. Um, they might feel really lethargic and we actually end up displacing or losing meals later on in the day. So I'll talk about this idea of food fortification, which is can we add calories to your diet you know, across the 12 hours that you eat? And what I call energy dense foods versus having like one extra really big meal a day, which is likely to be unsustainable. So energy dense foods is basically things like that. So if you think about butter, cream, Greek yogurt, avocado, nut butters, nuts and seeds, good old oil, like olive oil or avocado oil, how can you add five moments of food fortification to your day? So if I wanted an athlete to have an extra, you know, 300 calories at breakfast, I can either chase them around with three pieces of toast in addition to their porridge, which they'll probably hate me for, or I could get them to add, you know, a couple of tablespoons of cream and a tablespoon of peanut butter to their porridge. You don't take up any more extra stomach room, but you've got that extra nutrition going in, if that makes sense. So overall calorie intake is really important. Um, fat is a really useful tool only because you have more calories in a gram of fat than you do in a gram of protein or carbohydrate. And then I spoke earlier about how we now understand that having insufficient carbohydrate intake suppresses lumbarizing hormone as well. So making sure your athletes are getting in enough carbohydrate across the day. So your habitual intake, but also around your training too. Mm. So interesting. And we want to chat a little bit about a couple of fad diets, one including low carb, but let's start off with fasting. I don't know if whether you would consider that a fad diet or not, but what is your take on fasting? Yeah, I'm making faces at Lydia for listeners. <laughs> <laughs> my eyes were rolling. No, I think, um, so I guess in my time as a dietitian, I've noticed that uh, there's always a phase and there's always a craze. And if I think about fasting in particular, that is just a really nice word for starving. It's a really nice word for starving. And if you think about this idea, we've just spent, you know, spent an hour talking about how women need to eat more. Women of peak reproductive years, so ovulating females who are exercising to the extent that female listeners are, I don't think should be fasting. Um, I think it's, yeah, one of the most dangerous things that can be happening to their hormonal health, that's for sure. There is some evidence that uh, intermittent fasting can be useful in women of perimenopause or menopause uh, after ovulation is finished, obviously. Um, and you know, a lot of the research in both low-carb and fasting is done in males, not females, where there tends to be less hormonal side effects. Yeah, wow. It sucks that all that research that's been done is just lumped to females as well. And they say, yeah, go do that too. When really it's actually probably caused a lot of issues for women over time. Yes, absolutely. I think it's, um, it's unfortunately something that's really normal is, um, you know, clients coming to see me and fasting being a tool in their toolbox for whatever reason. Yeah, definitely. And then there was also that sort of uh, 
high fat, low carb diet thing that went um, pretty, it expanded pretty quickly, especially in endurance sports and like ultra marathon type events. Cause they, they say that fat is slower to burn. So you can go for longer with fat as your fuel. What is your take on that for endurance events? Do you think that has any backing, especially for a woman? Uh, I mean, to be honest, it's not an area that I'm super proficient in, but my understanding is that they're, they're working on the basis that you can be glycogen adaptive, is the buzzword that they use. So um, glycogen is, I don't know who they are, but they use. Uh, so glycogen is storage of glucose. And I guess, um, you know, a lot of runners experience issues like runner's gut, where they're kind of using gels and electrolytes, so lots of glucose um, ingestion during sports to manage the energy levels. And for a lot of people that results in, you know, things like diarrhea or lots of bloating or sometimes upper GI things, the nausea or not being able to keep food down. So I think a lot of the athletes that I've met that are tempted by high fat, low carb nutrition, they're trying to avoid digestion issues while they're running. Um, and I would just encourage them to think there's so many other tools that we can use before we have to use them. Um, if you are an athlete that's wanting to do high fat, low carb, I would ask you to pay really a careful attention to your cycles and if you notice cycle changes like your periods becoming really light all of a sudden or your cycles becoming really irregular or absent altogether I would say it's probably not the tool for you yeah and I can't relate to that anymore so my experience with the keto diet low carb high fat diet is one of the things that led me to falling into a state of redness so about five years maybe a little longer now ago um, I completely cut carbohydrates out for about six months and I actually initially lost a couple of kilos um, but ended up putting it back on within a few months plus more um, and felt terrible um, and then lost my period for nine months and ended up having to take um, some time out of running and um, yeah, performing as an athlete anyway. So it was not a good experience, but it definitely taught me a lot about my bodies and it definitely taught me a lot about paying more attention to my hormones because if I'd picked up on the signs about my cycle a lot earlier, I probably would have introduced carbohydrates and started fueling correctly a lot earlier and not had to take that time out. So learn from our mistakes. <laughs> um, but talking about sports and performance, what can athletes do to make sure that they're eating enough, uh, especially around training? So um, I know we've talked about, you know, those high fat foods if we are someone that needs to get extra energy in. Is there anything else that you would recommend such as like, you know, routines or things that we can be doing in our day to day just to make sure we're getting enough energy? Yeah, definitely. So if I think about, like we've kept talking about this idea of energy deficiency or needing to get in enough fuel. And if I think about what causes issues with energy intake in athletes, there tends to be a spectrum. Where on one side of the spectrum, you've got like the intentional restriction. So that eating disorder stuff we've kind of begun to touch on today. And then on the other end of that, that spectrum, we have the just disorganized athlete. <laughs> so the teenager that would rather sleep in than have breakfast or the person who forgot to pack something for their after-training snack on the way home before dinner, or the person who didn't think about what their evening meal was going to be, and then they're having to go to the supermarket after training and nothing left in the fortnight because they've had anything to eat after their 6 p.m. training. So um, you've kind of answered the question earlier. I would say get organised. I think athletes, like, they sit in my chair and they can recite how many hours a week they train and, you know, what time their training is on Tuesday and what the expectation of their training is on Thursday. But they often don't have that same lens when it comes to nutrition. And I totally understand people are trying to train amongst everything else in their lives. But I would say you have to get organized. You have to start thinking about food as just as important as 
um, you know, your rehab program, you're stretching, the exercise that's been prescribed to you by your coach, it literally has to be just as important. Um, so thinking about planning, you know, a week ahead of time, having stuff like in your training bag or muesli bars in the glove box of your car, all that kind of stuff can be really useful. Um, the other thing I would often talk about with athletes is after training, people can really not feel like food. Some of the hormones we make when we train can suppress appetite, but also your blood supply has been away from your gut and so it's been in your limbs while you've been training and that can often downregulate appetite. So sometimes people who, again, eat when they're hungry, they can really just not feel like food after training. And that doesn't mean we don't need to eat. So I find in that group, liquid nutrition can be really useful. Things like smoothies that are nice and cold and you're getting in that hydration, but also some nutrition, um, like little tetras of flavored milk or up and goes, that type of thing. You can get flavored soy milks and oat milks and all sorts now as well if you're plant-based. Um, so liquid nutrition can also be really useful, but have a plan, have some easy to grab stuff hanging around you that you can assemble, um, be organized and think about it just the same as the rest of the aspects of your training and liquid nutrition would be my top tip. Yeah, I even this morning had a training session with one of my guy friends and I said to him, did you eat before the session today? And he was like, no. And, he's, and then he went on to explain to me that he doesn't eat breakfast and he doesn't usually eat his first meal till lunchtime and he's training every morning. <laughs> And so I had to give him the hard word to be like, you know, you do all this training and you make all these other sacrifices. You really need to make sure you get your nutrition right or else you're, yeah. you're not getting the most out of your training anyway. Exactly. Yeah, it's crazy. A lot of the girls that um, I've coached would never have eaten after a hard session. And then they told me about how they would get headaches the next day. They couldn't really run very well. And they've added in that after training smoothie and they don't get headaches anymore. Uh, the next day they feel way more recovered. It's just insane how much it can affect your training. So if you want to get the most out of your training, make sure you eat after your sessions and within yeah. half an hour, if you can, um, but obviously, you know, a lot of women suffer and a lot of people suffer from IBS. Uh, we had a listener last week ask because every time she goes running in the morning, she has to stop to go to the toilet quite a few times. And she's been trying to introduce food before her runs in the morning. What can someone do if they are suffering from some irritable bowel syndrome sort of symptoms in the morning? And maybe what should they try to eat or what should they try to eliminate to make sure they can get a little bit of fuel in the morning before they run? Yeah, I think um, I was talking about this with a friend the other day. I think runners like basically have Google Maps of like public toilets in their heads. Yeah. <laughs> like we could Pretty tell much. you yes. where the public toilets are in our city like this. Um, so that kind of runners upset in the morning is a really common experience. So some things that I would think about is um, number one is you can train your digestive tract to tolerate food. So if you're someone who's never eaten before training and you go in trying to have a really good bowl of porridge, for example, before you head out the door, that gut hasn't been trained to tolerate food. Um, particularly understanding that when you run, your colon or large intestine kind of swings around like a bit of a hammock in a female. Um, so if you think about that, stimulating your bowel contents to move along, that's a really common experience. So I would say, say start really small and build up to being able to tolerate a full breakfast before a run. Um, I was mentioning just earlier that your blood supply moves away from your gut when you're exercising. So that glucose and oxygen and blood supply can be in the bigger muscle groups. So your legs and your arms, et cetera. Um, and that means that tolerating really high fat meals, so like lots of coconut cream in a breakfast or lots of nut butter. 
butter and lots of seeds, etc., might not go so well. Um, but also tolerating really high fiber foods probably won't go so well either. So one of the first things I would do with that client is talk about changing to a lower fiber breakfast. Um, so things like instead of muesli, can you pick something like uh, oats are slightly lower in fiber, particularly rolled oats? Um, can you do a bread that's less dense and grainy? Bananas tend to sit really well for people versus other um, high roughage fruits that have the skin as well as the flesh that you're eating as well. Um, so that would be my other tip. And then uh, the other thing I would suggest is actually think about what you tip each night for. So if you think about your digestive tract, the bowel contents, this is pro chat, but the bowel contents the next day, probably what you had to pee the night before as well. So if you're eating lots of, you know, I spoke about chickpeas and lentils and onion and garlic and um, lots of lactose, so lots of milk, etc. the night before, that can really irritate the gut first thing in the morning when you're going for a run. Um, and I was also, I was listening to another podcast, I think it might have been Runner's World podcast the other day, and they were talking about there's new evidence that the temperature of the foods that we eat can stimulate the bowel. So um, a lot of people will talk about using like a cup of coffee or a cup of tea in the morning to get the bowel going, um, but also I've got clients that are sitting at Black and Boo that hot porridge in the morning really stimulates their bowel versus cold breakfast doesn't have that same irritant effect. Um, so I'd play around with the temperature of your breakfast. Can you avoid hot drinks before you go? Can you eat something cold for breakfast like yogurt and banana instead of, you know, a warm bowl of porridge as an example? So interesting. So many good tips. I'm sure our listener last week will be very happy with the answer. <laughs> um, we've got one more question before we get into the quick fire questions. And now I know this uh, question we have for you is a very big conversation. So those who are suffering endometriosis or PCOS, we are going to do an entire podcast on this topic. So we don't mean to jump through this really quickly. I know there's going to be a lot of conversations to go on um, about both endo and PCOS. But just for the listeners that are out there and they are potentially women that are suffering either PCOS or endo, what would your um, top tips be for those women to help minimize their symptoms and hopefully be, feel better, not just in training, but in day-to-day -day as well? So if I start with endo, um, what we know about endometriosis is around two-thirds of women with endo also have irritable bowel. Um, and I won't go into that too much, but I would say if you can start to manage your bowel-related symptoms, a lot of women will report a reduction in pelvic pain as well, which can be life-changing. Um, so if you haven't heard of the low FODMAP diet before, I would definitely think about doing that in conjunction with a dietitian, ideally, or a qualified nutritionist. Um, there's also strong evidence to support a lower wheat diet in women with endometriosis, and it's been shown to reduce pain and bloating by about 70%, which is incredible. Um, so that doesn't mean cutting carbs, it just means switching to lower wheat varieties. So things like sourdough bread is a slightly lower wheat variety of bread than your normal standard toast. Um, things like rice um, or kumara or sweet potato or potato are great carbohydrate sources that are also wheat free. Um, and the other kind of top thing I talk about with my clients with endometriosis is looking at anti-inflammatory foods. So omega-3 containing foods in particular. And I actually often use omega-3 supplementation in my clients with endo as well. Um, with polycystic ovarian syndrome, very different to PCOS, uh, but my top tips there would be to understand your root cause of your PCOS. So we know that around 80% of women with PCOS have something called insulin resistance, which basically means that their body um, produces more of the hormone insulin in response to high glucose levels from carbohydrate intake. 
So something I really focus on with my PCOS clients is just being aware of carbohydrate contents of foods, but more importantly, balancing carbohydrates with proteins. So if a client was having toast for brekkie, for example, I'd be telling them to have toast plus egg, or um, if they were having cereal for breakfast, cereal plus high-protein yogurt, that type of thing. So can you pair protein with carbohydrates across the day? Um, I also try and increase women, uh, the diet of women with PCOS, I try and up the intake of non-starchy vegetables, so your colourful vegetables, because they don't contain carbohydrate, um, and we don't want you to feel hungry. So if you've dropped your carbohydrate intake to manage your PCOS, and all of this will make way more sense once we do the episode um, at a later date, but making sure that you are getting at least three cups of colourful vegetables a day would be a top as well. Awesome. Yeah, we'll definitely go into a lot more detail soon. So if you are listening and you suffer from this, um, hold tight. We'll have a hold tight. Episode. Yes, <laughs> hold tight. Exactly. Um, cool. So we're going to go into our quick fire questions now, Sarah. Uh, what's the one thing or the best bit of advice you could give to your younger self? Oh, comparison is the thief of joy. Definitely. Yes. It's so true good. in so many different rounds. But so yeah. many ways. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, and then the last quick fire question is, what is your purpose on Mother Earth? What is my purpose on Mother Earth? Um, I think my purpose is being an ally. I feel like I'm an ally for the clients that I work with. I think I'm an ally for my family team members, my friends, my family. I really, yeah, I think I position myself that way in, in lots of different contexts. You absolutely do. And we are so, so lucky to have you on our team. And thank you so much for all of your knowledge today and everything you do for Femi and everything you do for women all over the world. So yeah, thank you for joining us. And um, we, yeah, we'll definitely have you back on the show pretty soon, I'm sure. Fun, maybe. Thank you. Thank you to everybody that joined us on this incredible episode with the amazing Sarah. For those who want to find out more about Zemi, head to our Instagram at zemi.co or our website www.zemi.co. For those who are interested in joining us on the Femi Fit, which is kicking off on the 8th of February, head to our link in our bio of our Instagram. But for now, thank you for joining us and we'll see you all next week.